0: When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. From Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. From 1 Peter 4, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. From Romans 12, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. And from Hebrews 13, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. The word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. Father we um, have heard in your word numerous times this morning already from from Hebrews and as we as we sang the words of Psalm 107 uh, that you are you are the God who who gathers the lost who uh, brings home uh, the weary and the homeless and those who are in deep need of refuge and I pray that this morning as we consider uh, what your word teaches us about hospitality that we would see Jesus and the glory of his cross and the welcome uh, that you have extended to us and that you would begin to spark our imaginations as to what this might look like as we live in a story of hospitality together, of enjoying you and your welcome uh, of us. We, we thank you for your grace to us and we pray that you would help us now as we, as we look at your word. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as uh, Jeff has already said, uh, we're in week three of this series called Revision, uh, where we're seeking to lay out the vision of our church and really, you know, as we're moving out of this season of COVID and into the next chapter of Trinity together, um, trying to put our hands around what is God calling us to be as a church? Uh, Jeff already uh, said this. I'm going to say it again because it's not bad to hear the same thing multiple times. Kind of the thesis is, and Jeff gave this last week, using language that should be very familiar uh, if you've been around Trinity at all, the thesis that we are to be Christ's beautiful church for the good of the world. That's the vision that we see in scripture of of God for his church, that this would be a people that is being healed and made whole in Jesus and is extending uh, the beauty of Jesus into the world as the gospel takes root in us and as we spread that in the world. And today, we name one of the essential pieces of becoming that beautiful church, and it is hospitality. Hospitality real, authentic, genuine hospitality. So three things this morning as we think about biblical hospitality. Uh, what is it? Why we need it? And what it looks like? So starting with uh, what is it? I want you to think about hospitality. I've already said it so your mind is already probably going in a direction. What do you think of when you think of the word hospitality? <clears throat> I think For many of us, uh, at least for our surrounding culture, you know, our more affluent suburban culture, when you think hospitality, images of HGTV or like a Chip and Joanna Gaines type house, you know, certain images from Pinterest. uh, Everything is, you know, just right and beautiful. You know, maybe you come over and you're presented this photo worthy meal and it's you know it's beautifully cooked maybe it was grilled on like a weber grill or something you sit down and and then you're offered your choice of like craft beer or you know it's it's this image that it it's probably overwhelming it's probably something that many of us think you know that's not my house that's not my family that's not my cooking whatever it is fill in the blank but that's not really what biblical hospitality is all about. In the New Testament, the Greek word hospitality is this word philozenos, which literally means love of stranger. If you think of the word xenophobia, right, which is the fear of stranger, hospitality is the opposite. It is loving and welcoming the stranger. In the New Testament, it's not described As a gift as in you know like some people have a gift of hospitality and some people don't have a gift of hospitality those passages that we just read a minute ago from first Peter from Romans from Hebrews it's a command it's it's the necessary and fitting response to the grace of God that has touched the life of a believer in and through Jesus It has far less to do with your home or your cooking. Uh, it's, It's a posture, really, of welcoming others unearned, unmerited welcome. It has nothing to do with your ability to clean up your life for two to four hours and to make your house and your family look perfect. In fact, it's kind of, I would say, the opposite because it's inviting people into your real life that together you might taste the welcome of God. Rosaria Butterfield has a great definition of hospitality in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She defines it this way, seeking to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. We kind of have our own Aaron and I hospitality story of Trinity. I'm sure some of you could think back maybe to yours, but we came to Trinity in 2008, summer of 2008, and... I remember immediately after the service someone had scoped us out like they had seen that we were like the new person and so in this amazing and not totally overwhelming but in a, you know, a good sort of overwhelming sense we had people like flocking to us and engaging us and asking us who we were and, and, and just loving us. Uh, within a week or two, I forget which Sunday, but within the first two weeks of being here we were invited over to somebody's house and, and we, had, we had lunch with them we were here for about two and a half years before we moved out to philadelphia and then obviously just recently a year ago came back but throughout that time we were in many 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 homes we saw spouses argue and fight with each other and then offer forgiveness and grace and as a 22 year old and 23 year old who were just newly married we learned priceless things from being invited into people's real lives. We, you know, would be over at someone's house and we'd be having dinner and the kids would sneak down after they had been put to bed and so we saw parenting in action. We were invited into real lives of real people and together we tasted something of the goodness of God and of the gospel through that experience. Real hospitality in so many ways is just a part of what this church is. Again, I'm sure many of you could think of stories of your welcome and what you've received here. But like Paul, I love this, in First Thessalonians 4, Paul is writing to a church that in so many ways they're growing, they're, they're believing in Jesus, and they're following him, and they're fruitful. And he says this to them in First Thessalonians 4.1, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. This is in a sense a call to renew our commitment to biblical hospitality and to extend it further and further in this congregation and then out into the whole world. Okay, so let's think about why we need hospitality. Second, I think it's helpful for us first to take stock of the deformation that has happened over the last 14 months or so, right? We have gone through a season of time where we don't see each other's faces, where our embodied existence with respect to others Is one that, in a sense, teaches us at minimum to be cautious, if not outright fearful at times. Now, social distancing and wearing of masks and stuff—that like that's good. It was necessary, but I just want us to think about how, even on like a pre-conscious level, we've been taught over the last 14 months that other people are dangerous. And you add to this the fact that we live at a time when social trust is at an all-time low. If you were with us last week, Jeff referenced an article that is worth reading in its entirety by David Brooks in The Atlantic from this past fall, where he chronicles the evidence and the historical development of the decline of social trust in America. So, for example, uh, in 1997, 64% of Americans had a great or good deal of trust in political competence of their fellow citizens. Today, a third feel that way. Interpersonal trust, our relational trust with one another has plummeted. Less than 30% of Americans agree that most people can be trusted, which is the lowest number that's been recorded since that question began being asked in 1972. Today, a majority of Americans don't trust other people when they first meet them. Social trust, it grows or diminishes based on the ratio of the number of people in our lives that betray us versus the number of people that remain faithful. And we're living at a time where more and more of the sort of faithful supports that surround people in our society are not there. You think about what happens to people when their lived experience in the world more and more becomes people can't be trusted. People are just out for themselves. Institutions can't be trusted. Government can't be trusted. Speaking as a millennial, you know, for my generation, millennials and Gen Z, we've grown up in a world, a world of physical insecurity. Think of 9-11, school shootings, helicopter parents. Like the world is dangerous, is our lived experience. We think of uh, financial insecurity, student debt, the 2008 crash, the COVID pandemic. You think of a world of identity security where, in a sense, right now, everything is up for grabs. Our our rootedness in communities, our rootedness in strong families is diminishing and diminishing. And so now we're left to determine everything for ourselves. So my gender, my morality... Trying to figure out what's right and wrong. How do you even go about doing that? Our purpose, truth itself. And this is a time that David Brooks comments, it's, it's a time of explosive distrust, which he says, you know, more and more in our society, when we disagree with someone, we don't just think they're wrong, we think they are illegitimate. Is it any wonder that conspiracy theories are on the rise, that people are experiencing greater and greater levels of emotional insecurity and instability, that people are depressed, that suicide rates are going up? Is it any wonder that there is an epidemic of loneliness in our culture? Henry Nouwen, the 20th century Catholic writer, he said this about hospitality. The movement from hostility hospitality is hard and full of difficulties. Our society seems to be increasingly full of fearful, defensive, aggressive people anxiously clinging to their property and inclined to look at their surrounding world with suspicion, always expecting an enemy to suddenly appear, intrude, and do harm. He wrote those words in 1975. He goes on to write about hospitality. He says, but still, this is our vocation to convert the enemy into a guest and create the fear, free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. In an age like ours of distrust and disappointment and fear and loneliness, a church that reflects the beauty of Christ is a church that has to imitate the hospitality and the welcome of God. Perhaps now more than ever, our culture needs a community of people whose story is rooted and grounded not in fear and distrust and disappointment, but rather a community of people whose story is rooted in the love and the welcome and the grace of God. Okay, third... Let's think about what this actually looks like. If you look at Ephesians two, that's where I wanna start. This is what I would say is it's the cosmic and universal picture of the unearned, unmerited welcome of God that is offered in and through Jesus. This whole passage is really about the movement from a stranger and an alien, from someone who's excluded to someone who's now become family. It's a picture of hospitality. Look at the language of exclusion and distance. Verse 11, uncircumcised, right? You you lack something, you're not from the right family, you're not from the right nation, you're not from the right religion. Verse 12, separate, excluded, foreigner. Verse 13 and 17, far away. Verse 19, strangers. That's who you were. But in Jesus, you've been brought near. You've been reconciled. You've been made to belong to God's family. By faith in Jesus, you belong to a new humanity, verse 15. A people that's no longer divided. Verse 15, it is one new humanity, verse 16. In one body, verse 18, with access to the Father by one spirit. So, that's in a sense like the big cosmic picture of God's welcome to us in Jesus. What I want to do with the rest of the time this morning is tease out four ways that we can apply this. And all of these we can think about life here in this body as well as outside of this body as we relate to the world. Uh, These four are just real brief, and then I'll uh, explain each one. We see others, we extend friendship. We labor to unfold. We start small and dream big. First, we see others. If you go up to the passage in Mark chapter 2, we read that uh, Jesus is walking along and he sees Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, obviously, like, everybody would have seen Levi. They would have seen him every day. But the way that they would have seen Levi and the way that Jesus sees Levi is radically different the political tensions of jesus day were extremely hard and so it might be you know difficult for us to understand the level of hatred that the jewish people had for the romans and for anyone who was helping rome's oppressive rule one new testament scholar put it this way anyone who is familiar with moles and informants in nazi and communist regimes will have an appreciation for the loathing that first century Jews felt for tax collectors. They were on par with murderers and thieves. A tax collector was not considered a reliable witness in court. They were excommunicated from the religious body. These were disgusting human beings, unclean, unholy, unholy, immoral someone who extorts money from the poor to line their own pockets and yet Jesus sees him not as a threat not as an enemy but he sees him as a person as a person in need of grace and forgiveness I want you to imagine being a part of a community where the way that we see each other in this body, let's say in the midst of a conflict or a disagreement, or we feel offended by someone, that the way that we see each other is as image of God, as fellow brothers and sisters, that we refuse and we reject anything that would put in our minds that this person is an enemy or they're on the wrong side. I want you to imagine a community that has learned from Jesus to see others in the world, not primarily as a a threat or as an enemy, but as human beings, as image of God who need divine grace and mercy. We show hospitality by how we see people. Second, we extend friendship Jesus not only sees Levi and speaks to him, you know, he dignifies him with words with the call to come and follow But Jesus enters his house and he eats with him and his friends Now even like in our culture, we know that entering someone's house and sharing a meal Like when we used to do that a year and a half ago, uh, right? That is a gesture of friendship but even more so in the first century At that time, where hard lines were drawn separating who's in and who's out, eating was a way of communicating that. You might think of segregation in Jim Crow South. Signs on the window that indicate who is welcome to eat here and who is not welcome to eat here. And Jesus draws near to sinners to the immoral, to the ungodly. He draws near and he extends friendship and forgiveness and welcome. And the point that I want us to see is that Jesus makes the first move. Jesus draws near, he gets close, he extends friendship to people who don't deserve it, frankly. He's here for the sick. He's come to call the unrighteous. And so he draws near to them and he gets close to them. And I want you to think about the reality that this is how Jesus relates to you, right? Romans chapter five tells us that it was while we were still weak and ungodly that Christ died for us. It was while we were enemies that Jesus made the first move and he moves towards us with grace and mercy offering his life for us. What if we started relating to other people like that? Right? Where we weren't waiting on them to show whether they are a trustworthy person or whether, you know, they've earned it in some way, but we actually went and extended welcome and friendship to others. Third, we, we labor to enfold. In uh, Ephesians 2.19, uh, there's a word that Paul uses there. It's, trans- it's translated as stranger. But it's a compound word in the Greek, and it takes these two words, takes a word, oikos, meaning house or household, and a preposition uh, basically means alongside of. And it literally just means alongside the household. Which is this great like visualization of someone who's not in? They're not in the household. They exist on the fringe. They exist alongside. And the work of God in Jesus is this beautiful picture of the of the movement from fringe and outsider who's not in to someone who becomes family of God and belongs to the household. Practically for us. I want us to just think just in this body This means right that we are on the lookout for anyone who is new For anyone who is maybe by themselves or who might not feel like like they're immediately belong this means that that our knee-jerk reaction in any gathering of Trinity is Not to first talk to the people that we really like or our friends but it's to go and find anyone who might not feel like they're in And seek to draw them in. It means, I think, right, we we look out for children. We look out for the little ones among us. And we seek to honor them as those who are, you know, truly belong to this body. And we do that in the way that we speak to them, and the way that we care for them. Um, You think about community groups and discipleship groups. And when new people might show up to those groups or come into a discipleship group. And we seek to enfold them. And bring them into those relationships and in general you know we could say think of anyone who for whatever reason might feel sensitive like they don't quite fit the majority culture whatever that is at the time but whatever the majority culture is whatever most of us tend to be in this church they're not quite that person maybe they feel different because they have a different education level Or maybe it's because of the job that they work. Or maybe it's because they don't make as much money. Or or maybe it's because they're single. Or they're widowed. Or they're divorced. Or maybe it's because they're an ethnic minority. Whatever the reason, status, or struggle, there's this movement of we labor to enfold those who feel like they're on the fringe and draw them in. And fourth, we, we start small, but we dream big. The death of Jesus on the cross is both small and big at the same time. It's, it's both particular and cosmic. And here's what I mean by that. If you were traveling around Jerusalem on the day that Jesus was crucified and you were you know, just traveling in or out of the city and you saw a Jewish man being crucified by the Romans, you would not think anything unique was happening. That sort of thing happened with some regularity. Here's another poor Jewish revolutionary who's being crushed by Rome's power, who's being crucified to put us in our place. This is what happened. Yet through this seemingly small and seemingly insignificant historical event, God was fulfilling his promises. God was doing the work of cosmic redemption. And if you think about Jesus' ministry even, right, Jesus' whole ministry was a ministry in one sense of smallness. For three years, he traveled around in a relatively small area with a relatively small following And yet, the worldwide shaping influence of Jesus and of Christianity has touched nearly every part of the world and has so influenced our Western world. So we have to start small. And let me say, I think the way we begin is... Just like you have to plan to be generous, right? Like if you're going to be generous with your giving, you have to plan. We have to plan if we're gonna practice hospitality because like money, our time just gets spent, right? So I would say sit down, maybe, maybe by yourself, maybe with a friend in here, maybe with your family and take out a calendar and look at the calendar and think about is there a day this month that we could set aside where we are intentionally going to love others either in this body or someone in my neighborhood. Maybe, you know, if you're not comfortable with people coming in your house yet, you know, maybe it's inviting someone in this church or a neighbor to go for a walk. And you go as a welcoming presence of someone who is just gonna be with them, who wants to get to know them, who wants to extend friendship to them. Maybe you're already doing those things and so maybe the next step is something like looking at the calendar and saying, is there one day a week that in a sense I could set aside almost as like a sacred day that this day is the day where I am just available. I'm creating intentionally margin so that I can love other people in this body, in my neighborhood. We start small But we dream and we pray big. This was, let me say, in so many ways, this was a challenging uh, sermon and message to put together because... As I dug into hospitality and was reading and reading and reading more books it was like wow this is literally such a huge theme and as we think about our culture and our church and what it would look like to do this it is just numerous and vast. So what I'm about to say here it would be arrogant for me to name and give an action plan for every single one of these things but I want to invite you to dream with me for a moment and To think about some of the issues that we're facing in our society. I want you to think about, for example, mass incarceration. I want you to think about the growing disparity in our culture that's often described as the the upper third and the lower two-thirds that are feeling like they're getting left behind. I want you to think about refugees and immigrants. Think about racial tensions as well as outright racism. I want you to think about people who struggle with sexual identity. I want you to think about the LGBTQI plus community. What if Christians and followers of Jesus began to see other people as people and we began to reach out and extend friendship and welcome, unearned friendship and welcome in an age of hostility and polarization. Can you imagine how real deep biblical hospitality, loving the stranger, the outsider, and seeking to make them neighbors and prayerfully that God would make them family of God. Could you see and imagine how powerful that could be and what a testimony it would be To the gospel of Jesus and the power of the cross. I want to end with um, a prayer from the Anglican tradition, the Episcopal Church, from the Book of Common Prayer, a prayer for mission that reads this Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that all might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you into the knowledge of you for your honor and your name.